Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of The Rock is Shadow by John Blaine. Volume 6. All Uvula Audio books are in the public domain. Chapter 15. The Man on the Cliff. Scotty walked through the silent Brant house and went noiselessly up the stairs to his room. All was quiet on Spindrift Island. Since returning to the island, he had made the rounds four times and had seen nothing to arouse his suspicions. He put his gun on the bureau and stretched out on his bed, not to sleep, but to rest for a little while. In about an hour, he'd get up and make the rounds again. So far as he knew, everyone else on the island was sound asleep. After his talk with Hartson Brandt, who had returned from New York, they had decided Scotty was the only one to be trusted as a guard and that he should make the rounds hourly. He closed his eyes and relaxed, wondering how Rick was making out. He had a mental picture of his friend trying to curl up in the cockpit of the little plane, or perhaps trying to get forty winks on the ground under a wing. Then he decided it was more likely the farmer had provided him with a bed. With the practiced ease that was the result of many nights of waiting in the jungle, he let his mind go blank. The ticking of the clock on the bureau blended into his relaxed, half-asleep state, and he breathed rhythmically, content for the moment. Suddenly he was fully awake again, and staring up at the darkened ceiling, his whole body tense with listening. Some sound, too faint to be identified, had drifted in through the open window. He swung out of bed noiselessly and glanced at the clock. The luminous dial told him it was just past four o'clock in the morning. He stood at the window for long minutes, his eyes roving across the ground below. A shadow shifted through the orchard and was gone so swiftly he wasn't sure he had imagined it. But he kept watching, alert for the slightest movement. Then he saw the prowler. A dark shape moved stealthily through the trees toward the back side of the island. Scotty slipped his feet into moccasins Rick had given him. Then he hurried to the window again. The dark figure had vanished. Scotty guessed he was making for the woods beyond the laboratory. The next moment, Scotty was swinging over the windowsill. He didn't want to waste time going downstairs and through the house. He hung full length and dropped. Only a cricket broke the dark silence. He turned and went swiftly in the direction of the prowler had taken. In a few moments, the orchard was behind him, and he stood in the clearing just beyond the woods. He hesitated. Since he was going to the back of the island, he decided to go along the shore. The path wasn't so rough that way. He made his way along the seaward edge of the woods, watching for a sign of the prowler. Suddenly, he stopped short and turned sharply. A light had flickered, just for an instant, off in the woods to his right. And then there it was again, just for a second. The prowler was using a flashlight. Somewhere in that direction was the fork in the trail. Scotty estimated quickly. From what Rick had said, the tide would now be going out, giving easy access to the mainland. The prowler was taking this way to get off the island. He put a hand on his hip and then withdrew it, berating himself for a fool. The pistol Mr. Brandt had given him was back on his bureau. Forgetting the gun had made his problem that much more difficult. He would have to get close and take the prowler by hand. Once he had made that decision, he turned away from the route the man had taken and hurried through the woods in a roundabout direction. 
He wanted to come out on the bluff overlooking the tidal flat. His sense of direction steered him accurately. Other Marines of his platoon had said that Scotty had a compass in his head. Now that gift came in handy. He reached the edge of the bluff and made his way along it. His ears attuned to every sound around him. But the prowler was making no noise. Suddenly, Scotty dropped flat to the ground. A sixth sense had warned him that his quarry was only a few yards away, approaching the bluff from the trail. On the open rim of the flats, there was more light. He saw the dim figure come out of the trees to the rim of the ledge and halt. At the same time, Scotty began to inch his way forward, his elbows and knees moving slowly. The prowler bent over, working at something that Scotty couldn't see. He knew only that the vague silhouette had shortened as the man stooped over something on the ground. He was holding his breath now and was moving with painful slowness. He had only a few feet to go, and then he would rise with a piercing shout and charge. The yell would startle the prowler, and before he knew what was happening, Scotty would be on him. He hoped grimly that the man wasn't good at infighting. But even as the plan took form, Scotty froze, every muscle rigid. Lights had appeared on the New Jersey shore, powerful beams that swept over him and clicked off. There was the sound of an engine coming closer, then it coughed into silence. Scotty lay still, hugging the ground. The prowler had confederates on the New Jersey shore. The dense woods had hidden the car and muffled the sound of its engine until it appeared at the very edge of the mainland shore. But it was more than that. In the brief moment when the headlights had swept the bluff, Scotty had seen the prowler lowering something to the tidal flats below by a rope. Chapter 16 Scotty Disappears Rick awoke in the Collins farmhouse just after dawn. For a moment, he didn't recognize the strange room. Then, as the fog of sleep slipped away, he remembered and climbed quickly out of bed. My husband's clearing a path for your plane, Mrs. Collins told him. Sit down and have some breakfast. Rick looked longingly at the savory ham and eggs and thanked Mrs. Collins. Then he explained that he had to get home as quickly as possible. Mr. Collins was just finishing the path through the wheat when Rick arrived. He told the boy to forget about paying for the damage, but Rick wouldn't hear of it. He thanked the farmer and promised to send a check as soon as he got home. There was a bad moment at the takeoff when the cub almost failed in the full stall takeoff. But Rick put the nose down and coaxed, and the small plane responded gallantly. He circled and waved to his watching host and then turned in the direction of Spindrift. As the wheels touched turf on the island landing strip, he mused. I hope Scotty didn't dig up any trouble. Dad should have gotten home last night. I hope Scotty told him everything. Hurrying out of the orchard toward the house, he saw a familiar figure pacing the porch. Dad, he called. Hartson Brandt came to meet him. I was worried about you, son. Glad to see you got back safely. I'm glad you're back too, Dad, he said fervently. What about the Microtron tube? Mr. Brandt shook his head. Vanished. Completely vanished. And there's no doubt it was stolen. I've called the police again. We didn't do such a good job of handling things while you were gone, Rick said disconsolately. It's not your fault. Then Scotty told you about what happened? Hartson Brandt nodded. 
Scotty kept watch last night, but I'm afraid it was locking the barn after the horse was stolen. Where is Scotty? Rick asked. I haven't seen him this morning. I imagine he must be at the laboratory. It's only seven o'clock, you know. The two Brants walked toward the lab buildings and found the place quiet. There was no sign of Scotty. He may be in his room, Mr. Brant suggested. A feeling of apprehension crept over Rick. I don't think so, Dad, he said and ran toward the house. There was no answer when he called Scotty's name and his friend's room was empty. He ran back to the lab and searched again without results. Scotty has disappeared, he told his father tensely. Are you sure? He's not around, Rick said. There's no trace of him. Mr. Brant's lips tightened. First one of my associates turns traitor, and now this. If they've hurt that boy... Dad, Rick interrupted. Here comes that detective again. The police lieutenant, who had left in such disgust a few days before, was striding across the yard toward the boat landing. Well, what is it this time? was his greeting to Hartson Brand. Rick's father told the detective about the missing microtron tube, and they walked toward the laboratories together. Scotty, where the heck are you? Rick muttered to himself. He wasn't on the island, or he'd be at the house or lab. If he had been at the lab and had seen someone, he probably would have followed him. But where? The mainland? Not by boat, because Rick had noticed that both boats were at the dock. There was only one other way to get off the island, and that was the tidal flats. There was no use bothering his father unless the idea produced something definite. He started on a run toward the back of the island. Rick had not been a member of the Whiteside High School track team for nothing. In a few minutes, he was breaking out of the woods and into the clearing overlooking the flats. The shelf of rock was deserted. If Scotty had chased anyone this far, he would have gone over the bluff. Rick went to the edge and looked down at the foam-flecked rocks below. It was past low tide and the water was rising again. As he turned back toward the path, he caught a flash of bright color to one side of the trail. Scotty! he yelled and ran toward the spot of blue. It was Scotty's sweater. Rick reached for it, and as he did so, he felt something heavy folded inside the garment. His breath caught sharply. It was the microtron tube. He stared around him unbelievingly, as though expecting Scotty to materialize out of nowhere and explain. Then he cradled the precious tube in both hands and ran for the laboratory. Hartson Brandt was just walking out of the building with the detective and John Stringfellow. Mr. Brandt saw the tube in Rick's hands. Rick, where did you find that? Stringfellow's jaw dropped. I found it at the flats, in Scotty's sweater, Rick puffed. But how... Stringfellow stopped. How on earth did it get there? Apparently Scotty put it there, Mr. Brandt said. The point is, where did he find it? Doesn't it seem obvious to you, Hudson? Stringfellow answered. He stole it, found he couldn't get it off the island, and cashed it in the woods. Scotty didn't steal it, Rick leapt to his friend's defense. But when we find him, we'll know who did, I bet. Is this another one of those things? The detective cut him dryly. Can I get back to my little police station and have my nervous breakdown there? You better stay, Lieutenant. Hartson Brandt said sharply. 
That boy may return, and when he does, he's likely to have something to say that will be of interest to you. It's ridiculous to think he stole the tube. I suspect he took it away from someone. Rick handed his father the tube, and in a few moments, everyone on the island knew of its return. You may as well know, Hartson Brandt announced to the staff as they assembled in the main workroom, that there is an effort being made to wreck this experiment. I do not know why this attempt is being made, but there is no doubt that it has almost been successful. We are on the last lap of our work here, and I have no doubt more serious steps may be taken to stop us. For that reason, I think we should have constant guards around the equipment. Lieutenant, will you call your office and provide such guards? The detective nodded reluctantly. I think you're saying boogeymen, he said. However, I'll do it. As the scientists began to break up, to converse in low tones around the room, Rick went to the house for a belated breakfast. There was nothing he could do but wait for some word from Scotty. To his surprise, his worries hadn't impaired his appetite, and he ate heartily. He was buttering a piece of toast when he heard an odd hissing sound. Psst! Psst! A glance showed him Barbie, standing just inside the living room door, where Mrs. Brandt could not see her. Rick rose with studied casualness and walked to her side. Once out of earshot of his mother, he demanded, What's up? Barbie pointed to the telephone, breathless with excitement. It's Scotty, she whispered. Rick died for the phone. Scotty, where the heck are you? I've got him, Rick. Jump in the cub and fly due west. I'll be waiting for you near the red steeple just outside of town. I'll wave my handkerchief. There's room to land. What's this all about? Talk, Scotty. Hold your hat, Scotty answered. I've found their secret laboratory. Chapter 17 The Secret Laboratory When Scotty saw the prowler lowering something over the bluff, he realized instantly what was happening. The man, whoever he was, had taken the stolen microtron tube from its hiding place and was putting it where his confederates could go get it. That put Scotty in a dilemma. If he rushed the prowler, the tube might be smashed in the struggle. If he didn't rush him, the man would get away. He didn't want that. It was too good an opportunity to discover the identity of the traitor. In a little while it would be dawn. Already the sky was more blue than black, but he could make out no details. There was nothing familiar about the prowler's vague silhouette. He couldn't take the chance of breaking the fragile tube, he decided. He would have given much for a look at the traitor's face, but it wasn't to be risked. The tube came first. He couldn't be sure whether the man was holding the end of the rope or whether he had tied it to something. If the man were waiting for his confederates to come and get the tube, he would have to risk an attack. Then the prowler faded back into the woods and vanished, evidently wanting to get back to the Brant house before daylight. He had left the tube dangling where it could be found with ease. Already Scotty could hear low voices from across the tidal flats. He had to act fast. In a moment, the object dangling over the bluff was in his hands, a small Boston bag. He jerked it open, and his probing fingers touched rounded glass, the microtron tube. He turned to run with it, then inspiration struck him. He took the fragile thing from the bag, hefting it in his hand. He felt around until he discovered a rock of the same approximate weight. 
He swiftly made the transfer and then lowered the bag back over the bluff. He pulled off his sweater, and after carefully wrapping the tube in it, he hurried back along the path. He put the sweater a few feet off the trail. Rick would surely search for him, and he would almost certainly come down this path. He couldn't miss the bright blue of the sweater. Excitement sang in his veins. What he was about to do would place him in the hands of the enemy, if they only knew it. But the chance he took might clear up the whole mystery. It was worth taking. He went through the woods to the south side of the bluff, where the sea lapped softly against the island. He took off his clothes and made a bundle of them. Then he slid into the water, holding the garments high. The water was fairly calm, but the tide pulled at him. He circled wide, away from the rocks of the tidal flat and into the deep water. He reached the mainland and dressed swiftly. Then he felt his way through the wooded coastline until the faint gleam of starlight and glass told him he had reached the car. It was as he had expected, the gray sedan. He stood under a sheltering clump of birch, tensely listening. Minutes ticked by and he heard no sound. He had given the tidal flats a wide berth in his swim to the mainland. They hadn't seen him. At last satisfied, he hurried to the car, approaching it cautiously from the rear. It was deserted. The occupants were probably picking up the Boston bag right now. If they opened the bag, but he didn't believe they would, everything would be ruined. They would be in a hurry to get away clear before the morning light gave them away. Already it was growing lighter. The trunk of the car was locked. He tested the handle gingerly, then jerked with all his strength, wincing as the compartment snapped open. Then, with sweat starting out on his forehead, he crawled in and let the door swing shut. It closed with a rasp of hinges and almost locked before he realized there would be no way of getting out again. Straining to reach his hip pocket in the cramped space, he took out his handkerchief and wadded it under the locking bolt. Now the door would be almost closed, but not locked. He blessed the luck that had made the lock the easily sprung kind. His shoulder rested against a spare tire that gouged into his side and his knees were drawn up almost to his chin. He wished for a moment he had gone straight home with the tube. Every time the sedan hit a bump, he would crash against all the projections in the luggage compartment. He'd be lucky if he had any skin left when the ride was over. It was agony to lie perfectly still. Something ground into his ankle. He tried to reach it, but there wasn't room to shift his shoulders so he could move his arm. After a few tries, he lay still, suffering in silence. The compartment blanketed sound. The men were opening the car doors before he knew they had arrived. The engine roared into life and he knew any slight noise he would make would go unheard. He tried to shift into a more comfortable position. The car lurched and his head came into violent contact with the metal projection. He stifled a gasp of pain and clutched his head in both hands. When the pain subsided a little, he squirmed around until he was slightly more comfortable. Then he held on grimly. Whatever road the sedan was traveling seemed to have been chosen for the number of bumps in it. Then a new discomfort crowded in on him. Hot, fume-filled air. He stood it as long as he could and then pushed the compartment door slightly open. A brown dirt road flashed under the car, and he knew they had not yet reached the main highway. It was light outside. Now and then, the sedan passed a clearing in the woods, and he could see it was almost day. He resigned himself to choking on gasoline fumes 
and accepted the various jolts and bumps as stoically as he could. If the ride took him near a solution of the Brant's troubles, it would be worth the discomforts. Scotty felt a strong sense of obligation to the Brants as well as a deep liking for them. They had taken him off the road and accepted him as one of them. The bumping gave way to a smooth drone of tires and he knew they were on paved road at last. A kind of drowsiness overtook him, born of the close, fume-filled air and the soothing hum of tires and his lack of sleep. When the car swerved suddenly onto another dirt road, he was almost asleep, and a bad jounce roused him painfully, raising another lump on his battered head. The car swung in a slow circle and stopped. While he waited, hardly daring to breathe, there was the creak of a metal door opening. The car rolled forward again, but only a few yards. He heard the car doors slam. The engine was silent now, and he could hear the muffled conversation of two men, but he couldn't make out the words. The sound died with the closing of another door, and he knew he was alone. Slowly, he raised the compartment door, breathing in fresh air gratefully. He unwound his cramped body and stepped out, poised for instant flight. He stood on the floor of a large barn-like structure that had been a factory of some sort. Now the metal beams were rusted and the floor was littered with odds and ends. On both sides of the car, window-studded walls rose to a height of three stories. He guessed he was in what had been a loading room between the two wings of a factory. The rest of the plant was behind those windowed walls. A nearby door attracted him and he went to it, silent in his moccasins. He tried the handle and the door gave easily. He pushed a little, peering through as the door swung open. A long, deserted hallway stretched before him. He went down it, passing what had been a large machine shop with rusted lathe beds still bolted to the floor. Then he was in the midst of deserted offices. The end of the hallway loomed with no trace of the men, and he stood there uncertain. Where had they gone? He tried a nearby door, and it gave onto a flight of stairs. Scotty's heart hammered heavily as he went up, keeping close to the wall. It was possible to avoid creaks in the old stairs if one kept to the edge. His marine training had taught him that. The top of the stairs opened onto another hallway. This time he heard angry voices from a room at the end. He hugged the wall, his spine tingling as though ice cubes were forming. If they saw him. A small room its door opened attracted him. He slipped into it and looked around. It was empty. There was a small closet, and in one blank wall was a window. He went to the window silently. It was cut so that tools could be passed through. The room he was in probably had been used as a tool room. He looked through the window and dodged back, sweat starting out on his forehead. He had looked into an enormous room two stories high, in which four men stood. They were the men who had been at the old barn. Looking through the window was risky. He searched and found a series of holes that led into the big room, probably drilled to hold bolts for some since-removed shelving. He applied his eye to one and had a clear view of the four men. They were standing around a table on which the Boston bag lay open, and they were arguing heatedly. A rock, a strident voice was saying. A crummy rock. What's the matter with that guy, boss? There has been some mistake. I don't know how it happened, but I intend to find out. 
the commanding voice must have been that of Scarface. And if we have been double-crossed, we will know what to do. I ought to beat his head in, the first voice growled. That would be foolish, Scarface said. Don't forget, we must have his help. Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go find out. That was the bearded man, the one he had called Carlos when they were at the barn. Yeah. Well, you find out about this rock deal, boss. I'm going to go get some grub. I don't like this getting up before breakfast. We will eat, Scarface said, after I've made a telephone call to... Scotty strained his ears to catch the name, but one of the men chose that moment to knock something off the table with a crash. What rotten luck, the boy muttered under his breath. The men were walking to the door now. He hurried to the closet and stepped inside, swinging the door shut. Footsteps passed down the hallway, and he heard the men go down the stairs. In a few moments, the car roared into life and backed out onto the gravel road. Scotty walked out of his hiding place and into the big room. He knew nothing of electronics, but he knew radio gear when he saw it. The place was full of racks containing tubes and intricate wiring, and on one corner was a tall cylinder of gleaming metal. The laboratory, he exulted. This is it. He hurried to the window and looked out through the dirty panes, trying to orient himself. Nothing but woods stretched out below him. On the other side of the building, though, he saw houses, and a few hundred yards away, a church with a red steeple. The next step was to call Rick. His friend would be worried about his absence, if he had found out about it yet, but it was still early. He left the supposedly abandoned factory and trudged down the road to the settlement beyond. With the discovery of the secret lab, he thought, a lot of questions were on the point of being answered. Chapter 18. Captured. Rick followed Scotty from the field near the red steeple where he had landed in his cub. They plunged into the woods. As they walked, Scotty outlined the events of the few hours preceding. Soon they were near the road leading to the old factory, and as they reached the road, Rick saw the building. No wonder we didn't spot it from the air. I never thought of looking so close to town. We better work fast, Scotty advised. I don't think they'll be gone long. Rick stopped. Work fast at what? Now that we've found the place, what can we do about it? Scotty scratched his head. Gosh, I didn't think of that. We can't carry it away, can we? No, all we can do is look around to make sure this is a secret lab, and then tell Dad about it. Let's go. Scotty led Rick to the factory, then to the room where the four men had been. Rick looked around with eyes wide open. Brother, did you find the laboratory all right? He said. He made a quick inspection of the equipment that littered the room. He stopped at a complicated arrangement of wires and dials. This is an exact copy of our control panel at Spindrift. In fact, the whole place looks like a copy of your dad's lab, Scotty said. Just not as clean. It's fantastic, Rick said. But here it is. Look, the rocket itself, Scotty exclaimed, pointing toward the end of the big laboratory. Well, part of it anyway. The rest must be somewhere else. It's not in this building. Rick probed the interior of the control panel, noting that the wiring was neatly done, evidently by a technician of high training and experience. 
The separate wires were tied together to form cables, and they were tied tight by a series of half hitches. Rick stared at them for a moment, unable to tell why those little loops seemed so familiar to him. He was still looking at the wiring, lost in thought, when Scotty grabbed his arm in warning. A car just drove in, he gasped. The gang, Rick whispered. Now we're in for it. Scotty's eyes raced around the room, looking desperately for a hiding place. Over here, he said. They ran to the rocket cylinder and crouched behind it. This isn't very good. They'll spot us for sure, said Rick shakily. I know, Scotty answered tautly. It's the only thing in the room to hide behind. If we try to leave, we'll bump right into them. They heard the sound of footsteps on the stairs. Soon, the three men walked into the room. Rick felt dampness spring out on his forehead. One of the thugs was saying, How do we know this guy on the island ain't giving us the old double cross? Don't be stupid, the bearded man said irritably. Without us, what good does the tube do him? Rick knew that the him the men were talking about was the Spindrift Island trader, and he prayed that they would mention his name. Kogan, the bearded man continued, we must continue work on the rocket. Get your tools. The two boys tensed. They were hiding behind the rocket, and the men were going to work on it. Scotty nudged him. Well, get ready, he said softly. Rick's legs flexed, and he rose to a half crouch. He didn't know whether Scotty meant to run or fight, and there really wasn't time to ask. Footsteps advanced toward their hiding place. Bring your soldering iron, the bearded man said, his voice almost above them. We'll solder the connections to the intermediate stage. A foot scraped only inches from Rick's head, and sweat rolled down in driblets from his chin. They had to discover them any second now. I have the crystal, the voice went on. First we will... He stopped, butting off the word. This was it. With fist poised, Scotty sprang to his feet and charged. He drove his arm forward, straight at Kogan's stomach. The man went down, and Scotty yelled, Come on! Rick sprinted hard behind his pal across the room. They bowled over the bearded man and shot straight for the door. But the third man had anticipated the move and was waiting for them. The thug caught up a piece of pipe and poised it as Scotty ran toward him. Rick caught his breath as he saw the length of pipe arc up. But Scotty fainted with his feet to draw a swing from the man, and then, as the pipe swished harmlessly, floored him with one punch. Beat it, he yelled, and headed for the door. But before they had taken two steps, a voice rang out behind them. Stop or I fire! It was the bearded man. In his hand was an ugly pistol, a luger. It looked as big as the end of a water main as it shifted from Scotty to Rick. That's better, the man said calmly. He paused. So we meet again, young Brandt. The pistol muzzle traveled to Scotty. And this, I believe, is your rescuer. Rick and Scotty said nothing. Felson, get up and search them. There was the sound of footsteps behind Rick, then hot breath on his neck, his hands patted his clothes, then Scotty's, searching for weapons. They're clean, the thug said. The next order was cold and unemotional. Get some rope, 
A pleasure, said the man named Kogan. Let me beat their heads in with it. The rope, quickly, snapped a bearded man. The boys watched Kogan walk toward a cabinet and take out rope. The pistol muzzle still wandered from one to the other. How cooperative of you to place yourselves in our hands this way, the man holding the luger said. Kidnapping was to be our last resort, but you will admit it is an effective way of making your father give up his little experiment, eh? Rick pressed his lips together, but did not answer. He knew how right this man was. The other scientists on Spindrift might keep on working, but without Hartz and Brant's guiding genius, they would most certainly lose out in the race for the Stone Ridge Grant. Don't be afraid, Carlos said. It is not in my mind to harm you. When the experiment is concluded, you will be set free. Meanwhile, you will make excellent hostages. With Brandt worrying about the safety of his precious son, I do not think we need fear the success of the people on the island. When we get out of here, Scotty threatened, we'll have the FBI on your tail so fast it'll make your head spin. Carlos was unperturbed. He glanced up at Kogan, approaching with the rope. Nice, tight knots, dear Kogan, he said, and stepped back so the man could do his job. It was senseless to struggle. Rick submitted quietly as his arms and legs were bound. A line passed between his ankles and his legs were trussed up and brought close to his wrists behind him. When the trussing was done, he lay on the floor, unable to move without sending waves of pain through his limbs. Scotty was somewhere behind him. He tried to twist to see his friend, but a warning foot pressed against him. Relax, said Felson. At an order from Carlos, they were picked up and carried to a corner of the big room. There was a door there they hadn't noticed. It was open, revealing a small room bare of any furniture. Carlos stood over them. Don't attempt to escape. There will be a guard here every moment and the door was slammed. The wall was thin. The boys could hear Carlos giving further orders. It won't be safe to keep them here. Felson, you and I will go to the other place and prepare it. Kogan will guard them. We will be back in time to see the boss. He would not like it if they escaped. There was a grunt from Kogan, and the boys heard footsteps moving toward the door. It slammed, and a few moments later a car started and faded away on the road. Scotty spoke first. I can't move my hands, can you, Rick? Rick tried to flex his arms and legs. They wouldn't give an inch. No, we're tied for good. He heard Scotty grunting as though fighting his bonds, and then there was silence. It was all my fault, he said finally. It's no one's fault, Rick answered. We were just unlucky. A few more minutes, and we would have been in the clear. Well, what do we do now? Got some checkers on you? Rick asked Riley. The guard, Kogan, hammered at the door. Pipe down in there. All right, Scotty yelled back. We won't say a word. We're mad at each other anyway. Rick was amazed at that outburst. Then something touched him from behind. He realized his friend had yelled to cover the slight noise of his body, moving across the floor. Scotty had managed to squirm close. Shut up, or I'll come in and shut you up, Kogan called. I'm shut, Scotty retorted, and then he fell silent. 
Rick was conscious of a tugging in his bonds. Scotty was gnawing at the ropes with his teeth, trying to loosen the knot. Time stretched by interminably. Rick turned his head, but he was unable to see Scotty. Gazing at the ceiling, he noticed the wiring for the lights and decided it had been tacked on as an afterthought. A single bulb hung from a cord at the center of the room. The movement behind him ceased. He squirmed until he was face to face with Scotty. His friend smiled at him through swollen lips. Turn back again. I was just resting, he whispered. Rick obediently turned around again. It was an eternity before Scotty whispered, Pull hard. Rick put all his strength into jerking his legs straight, and then he felt something give. That's enough, Scotty whispered. The guard pounded on the door, and Rick gave a startled jerk. At that moment, the rope parted and his hands were free. What are you doing in there? Kogan demanded. Thinking, Scotty yelled. You want us to start talking again? Don't be a wise guy, Kogan answered, or you'll wish you hadn't been. They heard his chair scrape as he resumed his seat outside the door. Rick rubbed life into his hands and swiftly unbound his legs. In a moment, Scotty's bonds fell to the floor, and they sat up grinning at each other. Let's take a look, Scotty said. They crawled to the single window on hands and knees. At the sill, they rubbed a space in the pane clear and looked down. Scotty shook his head. They were two stories up, and the factory was situated on a hill that dropped away sharply under them. It was too far to the ground for a jump. Well, that's that, Rick whispered. Scotty nodded. There must be some way out. Scotty pointed toward the door. There is. If only we could get Coken to open that door. Rick sat down on the floor, rubbing his legs where the rope had cut. Kogan didn't know they were unbound. If only he would open the door wide enough for them to rush him, it would be two against one. He must have a gun, Scotty said. He might not fire, Rick whispered. They aren't out to kill us. Scotty grinned mirthlessly. I don't want to be the one to find out. They were talking in whispers, but inadvertently Rick raised his voice. Quiet in there, Kogan bellowed. Quiet yourself, knucklehead, Rick retorted. Scotty stared in amazement. Try to make him angry, Rick urged. He may tell us whether or not he has a gun. Scotty raised his voice instantly. Come in here and untie one hand, muttonhead. I want to see if your skull's as thick as it looks. The guard shouted, I'll give you one more chance. Keep quiet or I'll come in there and gag you. Come on, Scotty jeered. Come on in, Kogan. Aren't you lonesome out there? Rick joined in. Keep us quiet if you can, Kogan, he let out a wild yell. The harsh voice waited until the yell died away. Then it spoke quietly and ominously. One more yip out of either of you, and I blast a couple of slugs through this door. The boy's eyes met. Well, now we know, Scotty said. Somewhere far away, a dog barked. Rick stirred restlessly. The dog barked again a distant sound that came faintly through the closed window. His brows furrowed. That bark. It came again and he grabbed Scotty's arm. Scotty sat up. What is it? That's dismal. Are you sure? I know his bark anywhere. Keep your voice down, Scotty warned. He couldn't attract us here, could he? 
Not unless he's grown wings since this morning. The barking was closer now. Well, that's dismal, all right, Scotty said. He's close, too. They fell silent, listening tensely. How had Dismal gotten here? It was too far from the island for a casual run, and it was impossible that he could have tracked either of them. The barking stopped, and they waited for some sound that might indicate that the pup was near. Suddenly, they heard Kogan race across the outer room. His voice lifted hoarsely. Hey, you, what do you want? Then, a girl's voice answered, surprised. Oh, hello. I didn't know there was anybody in this old building. Rick and Scotty reached for each other at the same moment, their faces white. Barbie, Rick choked. She had entered the building and was in the outer room. Kogan's voice came through the door again. I'm sorry, miss. I'll have to ask you to leave. You must be the watchman, Barbie said. She sounded completely calm. Would you answer some questions? What kind of questions? Kogan asked suspiciously. Well, about this building. You see, my church club is looking for a nice place to hold a charity bazaar. We're going to have booths and games and prizes, everything. And some of the girls are going to bake cakes and cookies and... She's stalling for time, Scotty whispered. She knows we're in here. Rick nodded silently in an agony of fear for his sister. If Kogan found out who she was... The joint's already rented, the guard said. You can't hold your what's-its here. Now run along, miss. But can I please look around? I'm sure the owner would let us use it for just two nights. Dismal barked in the outer room. Oh, here's Diz, the boys heard Barbie say. Isn't he cute? Kogan was silent for a long minute while Rick's forehead beaded with sweat. Then the guard said, Say, I've seen that pooch somewhere before. Then he bellowed. I've got it. It's that kid's dog. I've seen him at the airport. Listen, who are you? Why, I... Barbie faltered. That is, I'm... You look like him, said Kogan ominously. Wait a minute. Don't get close to that door. Just move over to the other side of the room, sister. I think I'd better be going, Barbie said. Then there was sudden fright in her voice. Come on, Diz. You ain't going nowhere. Kogan sounded sure of himself. Rick could almost read the guard's thoughts. Scarface would only have high praise for him, and perhaps a reward if Kogan captured his sister. Please, let me go. Barbie sounded terrified now. Don't be in a hurry, Kogan said. Come on, don't try to run now. Ow! He let out a bellow. Kick me in the shins, would you? Scotty's solid frame smashed against the door. It didn't budge. He whirled to Rick, a wild look in his eyes. We gotta get out of here. Rick heard Barbie's screams of fright, and in an instant, he left the floor in a wild leap, his hands outstretched to the dangling light fixture. His hand just brushed it, and he missed. He fell back to the floor. I'll get it, he said through clenched teeth. He crouched and then shot ceilingward again. His hand closed around the socket and held fast. The jerk almost dislocated his arm, but the wiring yielded, and he landed in a heap on the floor, the socket in his hands. Scotty grabbed the loose wiring and threw his weight on it. It ripped loose and tumbled in a mass of the floor. Then he and Rick combined their weights in a jerk that snapped the wires loose from the junction box high overhead. Rick took the socket end of the wire and wound it around his waist once. 
Scotty ran to the window and crashed his foot through it, kicking at the broken pane until it was free of jagged edges. From outside the door, they heard the sound of running feet and Kogan's yell to Barbie to stop before she got hurt. Rick took the wire in both hands and lay flat on the floor, his feet braced against the wall under the window. Scotty was out the window in an instant, and there were long seconds when the wire bit cruelly into Rick's body and scored deep lines across his hands. Then the wire went slack, and he rose, pulling it from around him. He ran to the door and put his ear against it. Those kids are getting away! Kogan shouted. Don't move, you! Feet pounded toward the door. The guard had heard the window shatter. Rick bent low, ready to push him. The key grated on the door. The moment daylight showed through, his shoulder smashed into the panel. The door crunched into something solid, and he heard a muffled grunt from Kogan. Then he was through the opening, sprawling headlong with the force of his rush. Rick! Barbie screamed. He managed to catch a glimpse of her behind the rocket cylinder before he whirled to face Kogan, just as the guard pulled the Luger from his pocket. Rick started forward and the pistol muzzle steadied on a direct line with his head. Don't try it, Kogan said harshly. Rick stopped, breathing hard. The guard got to his feet, the pistol unwavering on Rick's head. Where's the other one? He flew out the window, Rick answered, just like a little bird, and he'll be back with the cops. A slim hand slipped into his. He turned and managed to smile for a very frightened Barbie. It's all right, sis. He won't do anything. Dismal trotted over and whined a little greeting. Rick bent and fondled his ears, listening for any sound from Scotty. Was he imagining things, or had he heard the soft scrape of footsteps just outside the door? Kogan gestured with the pistol. Back against the wall, both of you, and don't make a false move or I'll blast you. Rick gasped as Barbie took a step toward the guard. You wouldn't dare, she said defiantly. Kogan's hand lifted menacingly, and in that moment, Dismal decided to take a hand. With a low snarl, the little dog leapt for the man who was menacing his young mistress. His teeth clamped firmly into Kogan's leg, and he held on. Rick started forward, but Scotty was quicker. He came across the room in a mad rush, and his shoulder battered into Kogan's midriff. The gun flew across the room, and the guard went backward, his head crashing against the wall. He jerked once and slid to the floor unconscious. Scotty turned to Barbie. Are you all right? He asked anxiously. The girl nodded, eyes wide. Where did you come from? I was hiding outside the door. Thanks to Diz, I got a chance to do something. Let's get out of here, Rick said urgently. Just a minute. Scotty picked up the Luger. He leveled it at the unfinished control section of the rocket. Orange flames spurted from the muzzle. The crash of the shot sounded in Rick's ears, followed by the tinkle of glass. Four times more, Scotty pressed the trigger. Then, not content with the damage he had done, he went to the cylinder and reversed the pistol and hammered with the butt until the delicate mechanism was a tangled mass of torn wiring and broken tubes. Let them repair that, he said grimly. Come on, kids, let's get out of here. Rick kept a firm grip on Barbie's hand. He shook his head at the fury in Scotty's face. It was the first time he had ever seen his friend really angry. He hoped Carlos and the others wouldn't return. Scotty was in a mood to shoot straight and fast. Outside the building, Scotty turned to them. His face was its usually friendly self. I don't like mugs who try to put their hands on girls. 
makes me lose my temper. Were you angry? Rick said, grinning weakly. I wouldn't have known. Oh, stop it, Rick, Barbie commanded. I think Scotty was just wonderful. <laughs>